Okay, so welcome. Um, how many folks are new to CIMC? Okay. And how many people are relatively new to insight meditation? Okay. And how many people have done a lot of practice? Okay. Good. I just want to get a sense, um, <clears throat> because what I want to do uh, tonight is, for the first part, I want to offer, I want to read a poem and then offer a reflection on it, which uh, to me is a very, very beautiful, beautiful, beautiful Dharma poem. Um, that I think captures some of the sort of essence of kind of the core of practice that is very balanced and easeful. And often, uh, this, I usually teach this, uh, give this teaching at the end of a retreat or a time when we've gone through a whole progressive teaching. So it sort of relaxes people after they've worked very hard. <laughs> Um, and I'll try to mix in, so I'm a little, it's a little, uh, it's a little different to try to uh, just do it as a, as a teaching on its own. Um, so I'll mix in, just knowing the different range of people here, uh, a fair amount of trying to, you know, base it in, in our, our basic uh, insight practice. Um, but also, it kind of stretches, I think it stretches the, stretches the mind a little bit, which I like. Okay. As poetry, you know, poetry can do, right? Good poetry can kind of bypass our intellectual, rational center and more, more touch the heart and maybe move more directly into evoking present moment awareness, which is essential in our practice. So um, I'll do that, and then hopefully we'll have time to um, reflect on practice a bit as well. Okay. So first, I just want to read the poem. <laughs> and so you can just you can close your eyes if you'd like. And also, how many people were here for the sitting before? Most everybody? About half. Okay, great. So try to drop in, whether you're here or not, just drop into that, that kind of that place of, of just being present and doing your practice. <clears throat> so this is called Free and Easy, a spontaneous Vajra song by Venerable Lama Gendun Rinpoche. And I'll contextualize it in a bit. But now just take in the words and not from really a philosophical place, but just let them kind of touch the quality of how you are touching the moment. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. (laughs) Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do or undo. Whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind has no real importance at all has little reality whatsoever. Why identify with and become attached to it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to simply let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves without changing or manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow, which you pursue without ever catching, or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place 
It is always available and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They are like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, and comfortable. Make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further looking for the great awakened elephant who was already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or undo, nothing to force, nothing to want and nothing missing. Marvelous, everything happens by itself. So as you hear those words, just notice the quality of how you're kind of meeting the moment now. Can you open your eye? You can open your eyes if you like. Or was that a bit relaxing? So in in one sense, so what I want to do is I want to um, uh, use the teaching kind of as an antidote. It is, and this is kind of an antidote for the real striving mind in practice. Um, and it's also, um, it also points, and I think in a very a beautiful, simple way, to, to working with mindfulness. Um, but please don't look at it like from a, a philosophical point of view so much, but rather, and I'm going to tease it out, I'm going to go through line by line, but rather um, a place where this real sense of ease can inform both how we are presently and how we move in the world. So I want to offer a reflection on this as a, as, a, as, a, as a practice. Hopefully it's helpful for our practice. And it's to do justice to it also, uh, just a little background. Um, so this is from a, a, a Tibetan uh, wisdom tradition. And uh, kind of the motivation which upholds this very simple purity of this is one where um, one's being present and one's awareness practice is also very much through devotion connected with serving and showing up for others. So compassion. How many people were here for the 30th? How many people were here for the 30th? Okay, good. So right at the end, Narayan read a little, just a little parting prayer, which was from the same tradition, basically saying, may, may I cultivate, the, may I be you know, helpful for others. May I be like a bridge for people that... Need, a, need to cross a river and um, be like, may I open my heart and serve something much bigger than myself? So um, that's the spirit of this poem that it's it, the awareness that it evokes is within the context of a devotion to connected compassion. And in the, um, and in the, the Theravada tradition, which we're in here, the insight meditation tradition, the, uh, a, a parallel or, or something in the same vein is from a question that the Buddha had with his son Raula, where he asked him before he did something of like, what, how should you know how to act? And it was based on if you think that what you do is going to be beneficial for yourself and others, do it. If you think it's going to be beneficial for others and not harmful for yourself, do it. If think it be beneficial for yourself and, I mean, and not harmful for others, do it. But if you think it's going to be harmful, for yourself or others, uh, then think twice. 
So there's actually a, a motivational structure um, built in that looks towards the benefit of, of self and others as well in this tradition. So aligning ourselves with that motivation and then knowing that the power of our present moment awareness serves that is very fundamental in working with this. Um, so just from the start, happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower. Well, happiness is pretty much a universal theme that we all seek. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> it's the human condition. It's, I think it's the condition of all, of all beings, that we're all, we're all searching for happiness. Um, and this is pointing to a particular kind of happiness. So there's a kind, only kind of happiness that you can get if you have a lot of material things. Right? If you have a lot of success, you get a certain kind of happiness. This is pointing to a happiness that is of the heart and the mind, that is in the fabric of our experience as we live, from the inside out. So he's saying happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower. So when we manipulate and control and move through the world on the outside to gain success and things, often it takes a lot of willpower, doesn't it? And great effort. So he's pointing to this place where, wait, where if we want, if we want success, if we, if we want real happiness on the inside, maybe we have to, maybe we can't impose our same striving, kind of gaining mind that we do in the outer world on the inside if we want to find happiness. And I know that for myself and for many of us, when we practice, we, we come to practice with a project mind. We make a project out of practice like we would, and we're looking for concrete results. Now, good, we have to get something to motivate us to be practice. But once we step through the practice door, then the dynamics shift in terms of what actually affects the change that we seek. So, A great teacher, Ajahn Chah, says from Thailand, this wonderful, wonderful teacher, um, says that if you, want, if you want peace, which is equating to inner happiness, right, then you have to learn to let go. And if you let go a little, you get a little peace. If you let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, then there's complete peace. So this is the happiness. So it said that's the happiness of the Buddha. That one who does not cling unwisely. So when we come to practice and we look for inner peace, then our, our work is to... How do we create the conditions where we can let go of that which causes us suffering? Do we suffer? Do we come to practice? because we cling in certain ways that get us, in, get us in trouble. There's a great teaching called the two arrows, which is like life does stuff to us, it's one arrow. But then we, with our inner, our inner conditioning, we shoot ourselves with a second arrow. Right? Someone doesn't, someone doesn't behave the way we want them to, or the, the, the light turns yellow, I shouldn't say yellow, most of us know what to do with the yellow light. <laughs> Uh, terms red <laughs> at an inopportune time, and then what what happens in our hearts, right? Okay, maybe if you're used, oh, red light, time to slow down and breathe, stop and breathe. 
for many of us, we just we, we move into habit energy and we get reactive, right? So, and we suffer. Does that, does that help us? Does it help our blood pressure? Does it help the quality of our living when we get reactive and suffer? So we, and it happens, it happens constantly in life. And it can motivate us, but it, it's a, we pay a really heavy burden in terms of stress for this second arrow. We keep shooting ourselves with our own condition patterns, with what life does to us. So we want to learn to come out from underneath. How do we let go when stuff arises? How do we not cling and not perpetuate with all our condition patterns? So that's what our practice is. So we learn to do it by mindfulness. We learn to do it by bringing ourselves being present again and again and again. And then from that, our minds become steadier. And then once they're steady, when they're calm, then, then we can start to see into the nature of experience in a way that we don't cling. Have you noticed that sometimes when you're really present? Something that would get you when you weren't present, <laughs> that what you'd really run with, get a hold of you, it doesn't. You see it. You're present. You see it and your, your mind is resting. Your, your, kind of your, your sense of being is not invested in that thing behaving in the way that you think it should so much. You're somewhere else in a certain way, but you're also fully there because you're present. So our practice, and that's what letting go is. Letting go doesn't mean, it doesn't mean pushing away. And often people in our culture, it's kind of shop talk, you know, just good Buddhist language. Oh, I just let go of it. Well, often people don't let go. They're actually pushing away. Because letting go, and as the poem is, it'll repeat again and again, letting go is just being able to be with things as they, as they show themselves, as they, as they do their natural cycle of expression and then vanishing. So we let go when something leaves, whether it be reaction or whether it be something in the world, naturally changes. So we learn. So the second line, the first line is happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower. The second line is, but it is already present in open relaxation and letting go. So that's what Ajahn Chah is saying. It's just, it's in the act. It's in the, it's in the fact of letting go. But what supports this is an open relaxation. Now, how do we become open, present, and relaxed? Well, that's what our training is. How many people are familiar with the four foundations of mindfulness? I just want to know how much to... So it just means we turn our attention in the present moment to the body, to our, the, the feeling tone of experience, whether it's pleasant or neutral or unpleasant. We just have present moment awareness in relation to this. We have pleasant, present moment relation in, uh, in relation to our emotions and our thoughts um, and in just into how, how experience displays itself. And we can learn to ground our attention. So we usually start with the breath or body or, right? So we, we learn to be, we learn to bring ourselves into a, a place of just being present. And then from that place, when it gets stronger, awareness starts to get, get stronger and more when we apply it in more realms of mindfulness, then it becomes supple and we can start to see into the changing nature of our life. We learn to let go. What I like about this second phrase is that he says open relaxation. So when mindfulness is, we work in stages often. We'll bring mindfulness to the breath, to body, to selective aspects of our experience. But ultimately, we become mindful, become aware in the present moment of everything that's touching us in life. There's nothing outside of it. And so, and when it's balanced, then it's, it's open. And steady, 
you know, when you're kind of in the groove of meditation, when you're in the flow, then there's some relaxation that comes with it too, right? So I just think it's, it's quite beautiful, this, this way of putting it, open relaxation. So it's an open approach. It's a relaxed relationship in our mindfulness. He says, don't strain yourself. That's the second line. Well, how do we not strain ourselves? When you want to, don't we want to get the breath? If we're trying to watch, be with the breath? Don't we? I do. <laughs> I practiced it for many years in Asia, and I remember practicing with, in places where they said, if you couldn't watch your breath in this very particular way, in a very precise way for extended periods, you couldn't, you couldn't move on in your practice. And there was almost no instruction. And I would just, sometimes I'd feel like I was beating my head against the wall. It's not that I couldn't be mindful. It's just that doing, being straining, right? Straining myself in that way was not, was not particularly helpful. And this is what I mean by project mind too, because we can get in the same, like, I know when I was in school, when I was in college and I had to finish a paper, uh, I'd often stay up, you know, I'd stay up very, very late, sometimes overnight to get it done. And I was very inefficient at a certain point. <laughs> but I just kept, maybe you're not, maybe you weren't. You know, maybe you were, I know people that were much more efficient, but I would just keep, keep at it. And part of it, I was just showing up. And you know what Woody Allen said? 80% of life is showing up. Okay, I don't know, what the other, what's the other 20%? Probably being efficient in that. <laughs> so you show up, but then often that there's 20%, not 20% or whatever it is, there's a lot of straining. And so how do we work with that energy? Is it just me? How many people suffer from, from straining in your life? Like efforting, forcing. Only, wow, you're some advanced meditators. You're that or you're asleep. Or you have another tendency. <laughs> okay. Um, so learning not to strain is really an art. It's really an art in practice. So sometimes we can have really strong effort, but I often find it's better to do it for shorter periods and then to learn to actually relax, like a lens, like a camera lens that can be very wide or very narrow. Sometimes you go really narrow, like you just feel the breath very specifically. You do it for short periods, but then you, then you relax, you soften, you open a bit. Because it doesn't, it doesn't, you keep, it's like banging your head against a wall, right? So learning to work in a way that's not strained. And there's a very famous analogy that the Buddha had a discussion with one of his monks who was going to leave because he was trying so hard and he couldn't get it. And uh, the, the Buddha asked this monk, Sona, what he was before he was a monk. And he, he said that he was a lute player. And so the Buddha just asked him, what, you know, how did you make beautiful music? And he said, what would it be like if, you, if, the, if you, the strings were really tight? He said, it wouldn't sound good at all. If it was too tight, it would snap. And uh, if it was too loose, twangy, not good at all. So just so, the Buddha said, you have to learn how to work with your mind, with the present moment, with an effort that is not too tight or too loose. And so we often do that by knowing, by being in a place where we are too tight or too loose, but we see it. We take interest and we learn. And it's kind of a natural, a natural corrective in that. And so one of my, uh, one of my early teachers used to, I used to teach with, actually, used to say, just practice with a light touch. He was an Italian guy. He said, light touch. I can't do it. And it was very, it just, it was, it was in the, very much in the spirit of this poem. It was just like, it just, I just relax, okay? Stay with it. Keep showing up, Right? but just do it in a light, steady way. The next part of the line is, there is nothing to do or undo. 
Well, that's pretty interesting. There's plenty to do and undo on one level, isn't there? So from an inner, from a point of view of, of the meditative process, we want to we undo our reactive, harmful patterns. What are classically called greed, like just wanting mind that runs over and just has to get what it has to get and doesn't care about the cost for oneself or others often. Or the mind that, is, that pushes away, the angry or aversive mind. Right? That is a similar, except it's pushing away. That those, that, that those reactive energies, they're harmful. They, they harm. One act of, of real anger acted out on can cause harm for a very long time. Don't you know? You say something or someone says something that's really hurtful, it just can be like one thing. It can last a long time. It can be very harmful. So we want to undo, undo kind of delusion, seeing things in a way that's really not based on reality. Okay, that doesn't help us. It doesn't help us to see clearly and move. So we do want to undo things, don't we? And we want to we cultivate wisdom and compassion. We want to be able to be more responsive, more, more clear. So on one level, yes, we certainly do want to undo. So why is it saying? There's nothing to do or undo. Well, when we enter the place of practice, and this is, this is the... I invite us to you know, enter into this journey as we move through the, the words of this poem, which I'm kind of treating like a sutra, like a sutta or teaching. Um, that we move into the realm that this is suggesting. There's nothing to do or undo. Whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind, the next line, has no real importance, has little reality whatsoever. Nothing to do or undo. Not important. But when we enter into the realm of present moment awareness and mindfulness, then what are we doing? We're actually, and it becomes a, a very quiet passion, but it becomes, it's at the heart of wisdom practice in this tradition, is that you learn to be with things as they are. Exactly as they are. And from the place of being with the sound, with the breath, with, this, with the sight, with an emotion, with anything that arises exactly as it is, without doing anything, then in that moment, if you're practicing mindfulness, what? Is, do you have to undo it? No. You don't, have to do, you don't have to do anything with it. As a matter of fact, if you, you are doing something with it, then you're in a way manipulating it. So there's two definitions of mindfulness, two working definitions. And one is that we remember to come back to what we said for ourselves. So you need to be, like, you can be mindful in anything. You have to, remembering a task, right? Oh, I, my key, I left my keys downstairs. Someone reminded me. I didn't know I did. So I remembered where they were, and I went and got them. Actually, I didn't remember, so I had to go look in both bathrooms, but that's okay. So it's remembering. Okay, I had to remember to show up here. You had to rem- we have to remember all that kind of, and that's a kind of mindfulness. It's a simple act of remembering. In terms of practice, it means to remember to come back to that which strengthens our ability to be present or whatever we're working with in our practice. The second aspect of mindfulness, which is like the core uh, that makes our mind settle and helps us to create the condition where wisdom can arise, is, and here's the definition of it, present, non Judgmental awareness. Present, non judgmental awareness. 
And all that means is that we're with things, we're present with things exactly as they are. So there's nothing to do with things. You're mindful, right? You're present. But when you're present, things are actually exactly as they are. And so we're not trying to undo them. We're not trying to change them. And that's such a tremendous relief. But it's also not easy, is it? (laughs) Because our habit patterns are so, we don't like things that aren't pleasant. We like things that are pleasant, right? We push away or we lean into. So we, we systematically work on our mindfulness to ground our attention in things that are easier to be with. Present, breath, body, neutral. Say breath. How many people watch breath in your practice? It's nice. It's easy, right? You can be with the sound. You hear the sound of the bell. Or you can be with feeling that you're here, just being in your body right now. There's simple, neutral ways, relatively neutral for, some, you know, for most people. It's, it varies, each one of us to just touch that place of being present, just being present, not needing it to be different. So whatever momentarily arises has no real importance at all, has little reality whatsoever. Well, on one level, <coughs> again, of course it has importance. It's our body, it's our mind, <laughs> right? On another level, it actually has tremendous importance, even from the place of mindfulness. This is, just, this is just the suggestion of how to, it's not like, that's why I said it's not necessarily, you don't take it as a philosophical truth, but it's extraordinarily important. Whatever arises in, in our experience is incredibly important because it can be that which helps us to wake up. Any, same, any single thing that arises in the moment, if we know it clearly and cleanly, that can be our gateway into deeper awareness and freedom. And the Buddha was asked when he was wandering after he, you know, after he, he went through his whole practice ordeal and came out the other end, uh, he was asked what he was. And all he said was he was awake. He didn't say he was a god or he wasn't an, a normal man with, you know, being caught up in all his habit energies. He just said he was awake. So life is here. And this is, these are attitudes. So these are places to see if we can embrace as, as attitudes, that life is here to wake us up. And so in that way, everything that arises in our experience, everything from mundane to fantastic, is something that if we are with it, if we're really clearly present with it, it can help us to wake up. Again, we, the way we learn to do this is, is to learn to calm and steady the mind, right? And then to open and to see into experience, the changing nature of in the nature of experience, just as it arises. Very, very simple. Okay. So why identify with? And in that sense, sorry, um, the there is no real importance in the sense that our body has to be a certain way, right? Or we have to have. It's like there's no there's no importance to things to be as we want them to be, as we think they should be. They're important because they are and we're, we're being in awareness with them. We're entering in more fully and that wakes us up. The next line is why identify with and become attached to it. So whatever is arising. Passing judgment upon it and ourselves. This is kind of the key. This, to me, this is really the key of the, of the teaching. Why identify with and become attached to it. 
So what happens when we have unwise attachment, when we attach to things that we can't control and that change? Do we suffer? We suffer. There's a formula. Attachment equals suffering. <laughs> because it, it wouldn't equal suffering if we were attached to things and they didn't change. If our, if our lover that we're attached to was perfect all the time, and we didn't change either, but we would change, <laughs> then that, would, that doesn't change. That, that, that wouldn't, that, that's impossible, right? Cars get old. Everything, nothing stays the same. And so when we attach and then we place our, it, this is called delusion actually, <laughs> we place, we impute the kind of lasting happiness on attaching to something that can't conform to our expectations. It just can't because it changes. And we have an image of something that's idealized and it's perfect and it changes. Or we change. Or what we want changes, right? And so the attachment, either from the outside or from the inside, there's, there's a gap and it causes suffering. And how does that happen? Because we identify with it, right? We make it ours. How many people have suffered in, I mean, how many people suffer in relationships? <laughs> Because we attach to and then identify with the other person being a certain way. I do it. See the ring on my hand. <laughs> it's there. It's there and I'm very happy that I'm married. But I suffer a lot because I do. Because I'm identified with how I think this other person should be. Or I'm also, or I'm identified by how I think I should be in relation to the other person. And I'm attached to those notions. And those notions don't, they're, they're at odds with reality. Not all the time, but enough of the time. So this is just coming into question, why? Why do this, right? So at the core, at the core of the teaching is that we hold on to and we create this identity around things we, we have a relationship with. We make an I, a me, and a mine, and it's constricted, and it's limited. And we suffer because of that. So why do we do it? Why, why don't we just drop it? Well, that's what the poem's saying. So it's, that's what poems are good for, right? They evoke us. <laughs> but again, it's not an easy process. But when we do this again and again, we pass judgment. Just as it says, we pass judgment upon the other person or the object or the political culture or the whatever it might be. The roads, they're full of potholes right now, right? I have judgment. I think they should be better. <laughs> okay? I do. And I, I, but if I'm attached to that, I suffer. I, no, I just try to drive skillfully because that's what's there, right? <laughs> it takes a little longer. It's okay. Um, so the relational key that we have is to really learn not to place, to change our orientation as humans from a place of having. And there's a wonderful um, that psychotherapist, Eric Fromm, who I've just been rereading one of my favorite books of, of, of his. Um, and he coined this term, like, are we human, uh, human havings or, or human beings? So in a sense, when we have in relation to ourselves or others and we identify with that, that's one option. 
but then it creates a mechanistic, very dualistic, not fluid relationship, and we suffer, versus being, in the sense, just using here, that we actually were invested in the quality of how we are and how we show up, and how we do that, and that's, so that, that becomes the basis of, of our relationship. Not that this thing, having, right, we have it, our identity with it in a certain way, but rather it's the quality of being, it's the quality of how we, presence that we bring into relation to our things. And we put more value in that sense of how we actually are. And how we are is how we show up. It's how we are relationally. So I think it's a, it's a kind of a beautiful shift. Because when we move to the sense of being, then it's in the quality of how we are in our hearts and our minds in relation to ourselves and others, no matter what's arising. And then we don't pass judgment so much. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I in my, when I meditate, often I have these little commentators in my head. And I have these commentators, they run, all, they, they run and they comment on me. They're passing judgment on me constantly. You know, and I went through, many of us here have gone through a grading system for much of our life, right? At work or in school and both. And so we get in our heads, like, and even when I have a good sitting, I'll get up, I'll be, I'll be up, A minus. <laughs> and someone else wrote, no, that was a B plus, because you didn't, you know. It's like, it's constant. So for a long time, that bothered me, because I'm supposed to be like Mr. Mindfulness, right? Of course, I cut, sometimes I call myself the absent-minded mindfulness teacher, because I forget my keys sometimes, like that, you know? But it's okay. Um, but there's a, there's a different orientation when we become really present and we learn and invest in this quality of just being with things as they are, ourselves and others, as, just as they are, as they show up. And um, it can be a big relief. It can get at the spirit of, of and I'd like to read a quote by my favorite, um, one, of my, one of my favorite uh, Japanese poets. After I finished college, I went to Japan for a number of years and studied Zen. And uh, the monastery where I stayed the longest in, I ended up training quite, quite a long time with this, or quite diligently with this, this master, and I, ended up, I was translating for him. And he was very stylized, um, after this guy, Ryokan. Does anyone know who he is? Just a very beautiful uh, 19th century um, Zen monk who once he had gone through everything and became a, like a leader, he left and he just was very free and very, very spontaneous. And here's what he said. Spring morning, my begging is finished. I hang my bowl by the side of the Buddhist shrine to play with the children. Last year, a foolish monk this year, no change. <laughs> so you can see, you can think that he's foolish, right? But it's saying, he's basically saying he's not judging himself. He's, he was, he was, his poetry evokes living very deeply in the present moment. Very, being very responsive to what arises. The heart full of compassion and you know, responsiveness. And so he's just saying, I was a fool. This is, these are, this is how I'm kind of man. This is, this is how this being is as in, in certain characteristics. No change. It's okay. Because we're not passing judgment. Because that sense of being, being present with what's arising, has more value than him being, in, trying to live in the image, right? Having some image of himself as a monk and being that way. Or just in holding that. It's pretty, 
I'll give you an example today that happened actually with my wife. Um, when you get really caught in identity and attachment and what happens, it was just a very simple little thing. Um, and it's the cycle of reactivity. It's when we don't do these things, when we do become identified, attached, passing judgment on the other person and ourselves. So this morning we were, we, have, we, we love tea. So we have an automatic, like we have this hot water heater, Zojirushi, a nice Japanese brand that keeps our water hot, right? Keep it at 185 for certain kinds of tea. And then we get up in the morning, we got up this morning and she had her tea and I came down. And it holds about a liter and a half, it holds a lot. And I went, you push one button, you push another, and the hot water comes out, and you get your tea. And no water came out. Like, two drops came out. So it was empty. And her, she's just sitting right next to me, ah, drinking her. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Malaika, why didn't you fill this up? Because, you know, it was a domestic, right? People have little peas. You don't have any to live with anybody else? Okay, so, I, I, and I got a little reactive with her. And she got reactive back because I was a little overreactive because I needed my tea in the morning to wake me up because my meditation must not be good enough, so I just wake up. I needed my tea uh, to get myself set. I mean, I just like my tea. So I got a little reactive with her, and then uh, she got more reactive with me because she's, I mean, not more. See, listen to me. I'm still passing judgment. (laughs) She got slightly less. Okay, she had a reaction. (laughs) We both had reactions. And first I passed judgment on her, and then once it settled down, we gave it some space, and then I apologized. She, you know, I apologized. Did she? I don't know. <laughs> she did. She did apologize. Yeah, no, I'm just trying to think of the timeline. Yes. And she said she was sorry. She got reactive. And we talked it through a little. And, I re- and so I had passed judgment on her, and then I felt bad in the, in the time in between before I apologized to her. I felt badly that I had done this because it was ridiculous, stupid, you know, why wasn't I doing my Zen, you know? Chop wood, carry water. Empty, no tea water. Make tea water. Just simple. <laughs> I didn't, it's all extra. It's all from my reactivity. But to me, it was a perfect example of how I passed judgment on, the, on like I was attached, right? She's supposed to fill it up when, she, when it's done. Right? I'm attached to that image, that way that it has to be. And then I passed judgment on myself, so I was attached to it. I formed an identity around it. I passed judgment on her. And then I felt badly because I overreacted. And I, felt, and I passed judgment on myself. What's the point? So that's what the poem's saying. <laughs> but we do the best we can. And actually, one thing I love about that the Buddha said is he said, if you make a mistake, like I did in that situation, I, didn't, I really didn't need to be that reactive. Um, it's better. And then she was humble in that way too. Like it was authentic at a certain time, you know? That's what, probably why we're together and why we decided to get married because we have, we have pretty good relational skills in, in that way. It takes some time sometimes. <laughs> um, but, where was I? What the Buddha said. Oh yeah, thank you. Um, so what the Buddha said was that if you make a mistake, it's better to recognize that you've like, caused harm in a way and then to feel badly and to actually work with it, to work with it like I did. I was willing to feel it and be with it a bit and then come around the other side and reconnect, right? And we ended with a good, a good, good heart connection. It's better to do that, even if it doesn't work out the way you want. It's better to do that, like to learn, to, to realize, to make amends if you need to 
or just to try something different next time. It's better to do that than not to, than just to say it's over. So it's, it's actually better to be in that little bit of struggle. And I really like that, actually. Because it calls for a quality that is really important in our practice, which is humility. Like, like that's like real Khan had. I just like, I'm just a foolish monk. But he's really present, and he's, he's really there for the people in his life and for himself. But he's like, I don't change. It's okay. I have, this, I have these characteristics, but I'm really present. So actually, that's not quite the same, is it? Because he was accepting that who he was, and so he wasn't necessarily going to change it, but he wasn't harming people. See, that's the difference, right? <laughs> so he's learning to work. So if we can learn to work with our, you know, with our mistakes, then, then, um, then we can learn and we can grow. And as we'll see as we continue on this journey with this sutra, or this teaching, or this, this poem, that, um, that just this ability to actually be with it, what arises, that that's the seed, that forms the seed of transformation in our hearts. So the next line is, far better to simply let the entire game happen on its own, spring up and falling back like waves, without changing or manipulating anything. So again, he's pointing, kind of pointing right to the heart of how we often don't relate to experience. So first of all, the second part, without changing or manipulating anything. How many people in here are often, like I was this morning, control freaks? Okay. Now, there's something, I don't know the phrase completely. It's in the 12-step program that says, change the things you can. Don't change the things you can't. And know the difference. Have the wisdom to know the difference. <laughs> So this phrase, uh, in a way, it's not that we can't work for change and we can't work, but a lot of things, I can't change my partner in that way, right? And it's better that I don't try to control what, I, what is going to cause me suffering if I try to control it. So there's wisdom in that, right? Knowing that, seeing, not trying to, how many people suffer because you're control freaks? Okay, there can be something good. People, you can be, if you're really into controlling and you're within a closed environment and you're working, like if you're in a, have a skill set and you want to control all the variables and you want it to, you can be very precise and meticulous and detail-oriented, which can be really, really good, right? But it's slightly different, <laughs> okay? And just, so he's saying don't be, you know, don't be a control freak because you'll suffer, okay? Far better to simply let the entire game happen on its own, and the next line is, and notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically. So now we get to the core of how wisdom comes in, which is that wisdom, the nature of experience is to change. The nature of awareness is to know. When we become more aligned with the awareness and it becomes more mature, then we can actually appreciate and enter into a different relationship with change. So Ajahn Chah said uh, that change is, it's, a, it's like a benevolent ruler of the universe, which is actually true, because everything changes, <laughs> right? It's the one controlling principle, so it rules, it rules the universe. And it's actually benevolent, it's trying, this empress is trying to teach us to be happy and to be free inside, but we don't want to listen. So we really, it's true, we appreciate impermanence when it's birth and when it's, we appreciate the impermanence of, uh, or when it's things that are unpleasant and they leave, right? So at first, 
I appreciate it. I live north of here a bit. I appreciated when the snowbanks came. We have actually have some land, and it's, it was very beautiful, right? Was it beautiful this winter, okay? But I did not appreciate when I couldn't do anything, and I spent my, half my life shoveling, and I've had acupuncture and massages and everything else because my back, keep her in my back, okay? So I did not appreciate, and now I'm appreciating the fact that it's melting. Is, are people appreciating that? And it's not as pretty, though, right? Because black, but it's, we're appreciating the change, and that we're going to appreciate the spring. So actually, this is a good example of how we're appreciating both the, like the dying of something, these, right, these big snowbanks, and we're going to be, and we're appreciating it was warm the last few days, right? Relatively, we appreciate that. But often we just appreciate the change that is beautiful and pleasant, and that if it's hard, and it's, it's of course we do. If there's loss, or there's change in this way, and our bodies get older, then that we don't appreciate, because it, because it can be hard, right? But what, what the teaching is saying is that, and I love the way the poem puts it, is that everything vanishes and reappears magically, springing up and falling back like waves. So it's, it's t- asking us to take a kind of like a bigger picture in a way with our hearts and our minds to actually realize that whatever it is, and this is where our practice can help us, whatever it is, this is actually the natural display of just the way things are. And so it's arising and passing and, it's just, it's a, it's a magical display, isn't it? It doesn't stop, does it? It just keeps going on and on. And, and we're really present and we start to come to that sense of really valuing being present, then our relationship to the play of change changes. It starts to change. We can hold it a little more fully because it is the way, thing, the way things are is always changing. <laughs> it's just a fact. So when we don't align ourselves with that and work with that, what happens? Okay? So that's why it's benevolent. It's a benevolent teacher. Just so even as I'm saying it, everyone's face are dragging. Why? What happens when, we, like, do you ever wake up and just, when things change, you just really look into them and see this is just the nature? And just, like in monasteries, they used to see flowers. You're beautiful. You'd have flowers in the altar. You really appreciate them. But they'd keep them until after they wilted. So you could just see the whole cycle of it. So you could just appreciate, oh, this is actually, this is really, this is really the fullness of life. And so it says, spring up again and again, time without end. And that's the beauty of our practice is that it actually takes us so deeply in present time. It says time without end, but it would be time without beginning as well. It's just, it's timeless. When you're really present, does your relationship to time change? in the moments when you're really, really, really present. Like, I mean, it slows, in one sense it can slow down, right? But it just changes. So this is, this is pointing right to the heart of that. It's time, time without end, timelessness. And so it calls us, when we enter into this, the changing field of experience that is our life, again and again from this place, knowing that this is just, this is just the nature. It just goes on and on and on then our mindfulness practice, and the Buddha describes it beautifully in the Bade Karata Sutta, which is the sutra on how to have an auspicious day. And this is, he said, you shouldn't chase after the past or place expectations on the future. What is past is left behind. The future is as yet unreached. Whatever quality is present, 
you clearly see right there, right there. Not taken in, unshaken. That's how you develop the heart. Get it? (laughs) So it's this sense of just turning exactly to what is, to the actual qualities of what's arising in the now. In a way, when it's very deep, it's in the timeless now. Because we just step, we're stepping out of our thoughts of the future, the past imposing itself. Now, if you're with the, you know the quality of what's, if you have a strong memory and you know that quality, then that's present. That's arising in the present. It is. But if it's drawing you and you're not meeting it present, you're getting caught in it, then it's not present. You're not mindful of it. Okay? So it's saying that's how you develop the heart. And so this is saying, okay, how do, you, how do we... The Buddha said our mind is our, an untrained mind. A mind does not know how to work skillfully in terms of this mindfulness teaching with being present. An untrained mind is the, our worst enemy because we just our, our reactivity, our unseen reactivity just ran, runs, runs over us. And we keep acting out of it, and then we have to reap the, and us and others have to reap the rewards of that, right? The fruits of that. That's what happens. But he also said the trained mind is our best friend. The mind, that the heart that is invested in being present and working skillfully with what arises, and then moving from that place. That's our best friend. So saying this is how you train the heart. And how do you do it? By knowing what's right here. So stepping right into the heart of this moment and seeing it clearly. So really, in a certain way, it's not about what's arising in life, but it's about how we're, how we're actually meeting it, like the quality of how we're meeting life that starts to make this change in our inner relationship to life. So I had this thing that kept happening to me when I was a monk. I was, I was a monk for about a year in Thailand, and we had the wor- uh, uh, It was not tasty food. I'd grab my alms bowl and we'd come back. We'd get, like, greasy People would, it was very nice. It was a beautiful ritual. People would put food. So we were, real, we were dependent on going to people's houses and they'd put food in our bowls. And, but it wasn't, a lot of it was not very nourishing. I mean, it wasn't very tasty. It was greasy and it was overcooked. And this, from whole food standards, of course, right? From, <laughs> from our Cambridge standards, all right? <laughs> I don't know if they had GMO back then or not, but. <laughs> but sometimes when I would eat and have my meal, it was incredibly delicious. And the food wasn't delicious, but it was delicious. And the only way I could, the only way I could figure it out, it, kept, it, hap- it didn't happen all the time. Sometimes I felt re- revulsion because there were some putre- certain kinds of what I would consider putrefied fish. It was just a certain fermented fish they used to have. Then I became a vegetarian. I'd push everything off to the side and just eat the vegetables. Um, but there was a quality, and I, it kept surprising me. Sometimes I would just have, it would be the most enjoyable meal. And it was because I was really, really, really mindful and present. So we can, ta- we can touch that in our own life. You can have very simple things that you do with a kind of extraordinary full attention. And just, just check it out. It's a theory, but just, just what is the quality of what actually how that is? when we give our full care and attention, we really know. And the quality is not a a judgmental overlay from this point of view. 
It's just not exactly how it is. How it is, and so that can wake us up. So there's stories like of Zen monks who were woken up by their focus. They're steady, and they're just walking along, and they hit a rock, and it hits a pebble, splash in the stream, and their mind opens, their heart opens. Or Ananda, the Buddha's assistant, he was very been practicing mindfulness very steadily, and he'd given up his formal practices technique, and he was going to lay down. And as he lay down, his mind opened up because he just relaxed into something that was very, very simple. Okay. So this poem captures a beautiful, um, a beautiful spirit of that. Next line, although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you every instant. Although peace and happiness does not exist as an actual thing or place, which we often think it does, and we strive pretty hard to get it. And I wouldn't have mind going to someplace warm. I didn't go this. I didn't go on a vacation this winter to some, you know, someplace warm. That would have been very nice. I wanted to when it was really. It's been a long winter, right? <laughs> so my mind wanted to go. You know, I wanted to find an actual thing or place that was separate from here to make me happy. And we have that. We, we, and so you can do things like that to help balance ourselves, of course, right? But it's saying that the quality is actually what I was just speaking to, is that the possibility of freedom is something that exists with us every moment in how we are and how we're meeting the moment. And that it's pointing to, pointing to a quality, a potential in the heart and the mind that we very rarely touch, and that mindfulness becomes a gateway too. And there's not much that we can say about it. But when we're really fully present and we drop the identification and be fully in, in intimacy, though again, one Zen teacher said that actually awakening is intimacy. So it's not this kind of cold separation. That can be one form of mindfulness. But it's actually we're really present. That that's actually when awakening happens. That's when our hearts really open to some much deeper potential. And in the Bahia Sutta, the, the Buddha says that when there's just the seen, when there's just the heard, there, even when you're just being with a thought fully, which is a harder kind of mindfulness to practice for most, for most of us, because when we have a thought, we chase after it. We identify with it much more quickly often than we do you know, the, the quality of touch, our foot touching the ground. But he said even in the cognized or in the felt, in the seen, in the heard, in the cognized, the felt, in the touched, in the sensed. When there's just that, just the seen, heard, felt, just the senses, or just knowing the mind or the heart, when there's just that, and there's no identification in what you're seeing, experiencing, or in receiving it, because there's just presence. When there's no identification in the object or in yourself, He said, this, just this, is the end of suffering. So it's this like clarion call of just, just this, again and again. And it's so utterly simple. (laughs) And awareness is here. It's nowhere else. But it's too close. And so we have to train. It's like we have to... You know, one of the metaphors, you have to kind of peel away the layers of the onion to realize what's underneath or what's, because our conditioning is strong, right? And our practice, we try to use our conditioning to help us 
so that we can just be with things as they are. So the next line is don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. So again, it's helping us to helping us to come out of this mind that is overlaying on top of the experience. So there are these, what they call these winds, the winds of, of how we overlay. Or just This is what happens in life. We have pleasure, we have pain, we have gain, we have loss. We have praise and blame. We have fame and disrepute. We have all these things, and this is what happens in the world. And they're just, they just keep, they're called winds. And they just keep blowing. So it's saying, don't believe in the reality. So it's like, put, put, your, put your confidence somewhere else. Because these are the winds of the world. <laughs> that's, what they, that's what the world, it's fine. This is, just what, this is just what happens. So don't think it should be other. They're like today's ephemeral weather, he says, like rainbows in the sky. Now this points to a deeper teaching as well, that when we start to touch awareness and sustain our kind of learn to abide in being present. And actually one definition of mindfulness, which uh, Joseph Goldstein, the the founders of the Insight Meditation Society, he has a whole, he has a a beautiful series of talks that are all called Abiding in Mindfulness. So it's this sense of abiding, which is more of a sense of resting, right? Relaxing, rather than doing, okay? Then when we learn to to abide and that awareness starts to grow, abiding, awareness grows, mindfulness grows. That um, they're like ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. So that means we actually start to see things with a diff- from a different place where the heart and the mind are a little more open. And I'm sure in your practice, in moments, we've all had this, where our hearts and our minds are just a little more open and we're a little more able to see things. And we even see them more vividly, but we see them from a place that's more spacious, that's more open. It's in a way more heartful because there's more room. And uh, a Tibetan teacher, Chogim Trungpa, held up this picture with his students. It said, chalkboard actually, he drew a bird on it and he said, what do you see? And everyone said a bird. And he said, no. He said, there's a bird in the sky. Because he took this empty chalkboard and he just drew a little bird on it. So that's, it's like seeing that our experience is in, just as he's saying here, that that the nature of awareness is bigger. And in one long retreat I was doing, Joseph was, my, was a teacher of mine, and I asked him, like we were talking about how practice unfolds, and he said basically over time energetically and in terms of your awareness, you just hold more experience. You just hold more. That's just how that, it, it just opens. We just open in little bits. And that, that's what happens. The mind and the heart become more, more inclusive, more sky-like. More can be in there and there's still space in relation to it. So that's, how, that's actually how awakening, in my experience, to whatever little bits I've, I've awoken, it happens, is that the mind's tight, it's identified, it can't be with this, it's outside of what it can be, and then it opens a little more. A grief, a sorrow, a joy, some, some, it just opens. It's a pain in the body. In the mind, the heart just learn to become a little bigger. So this poem is pointing very clearly to that. Is that these, the experiences like, like clouds in the sky, right? Things that move through the sky, but they're not the sky. The present moment always remains. It's always here. It's always available. Awareness is always right here. 
And this is the changing show. Okay? And we confuse the two. So <clears throat> wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. And uh, when I was training in Japan with this, this Zen master I mentioned before, his name was Tangen Haradaroshi, and uh, he's extraordinarily spontaneous. Um, and we were quite close, and when I decided to leave, he, he saw me as like having shopping mind, like I was going to go try some other thing. <laughs> like suffering in the Zen monastery wasn't enough. <laughs> it's pretty hard training. Um, but what he said, he said, if you don't, if you don't actually stay steady, then you're going to get tired out. Like your mind, even though it's spiritual seeking, there's going to be some quality in your mind that actually you're going to be grasping and you're going to get tired out. Um, so he's saying wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. So I think we all have to look in terms of our own practice, in our, in our own spiritual search or self-knowledge. We have to be careful... Um, to stay with something long enough, even when it gets a little edgy, so that, so that we, we don't just like use, we don't have shopper's mind in this. We don't have like consumer, oh, what's the next hit? I tried that for a month. I'm not, there are paths that are better than others, right? That are more appropriate. So it's good. It's actually really good to try different things. And it's sometimes, it's, I practice in a number of, a number of traditions. It's, it's good, it's actually really good sometimes to change. Can be really can be really helpful to the psyche, for the mind, the heart, to our life experience to broaden out. But we have to see the difference between that and just like, okay, I'm gonna try this. I'm gonna get, oh, it's juicy for me now, and then it gets a little dry, and we run up against a little something we don't like, and whoosh, yep, what's next? And so this is pointing to that grasping, right? Grasp the ungraspable. So it's like we're looking for an ideal, we impose ideals on this process too. And that we try to grasp at them. And if we just do that, we have, and it's fine that we do that, but we have to, if we can get onto ourselves a little bit, then we'll, we'll stay put a little bit more sometimes and we'll learn, right? So grass, grasping the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite spaces, they're open, inviting, and comfortable. So it's, an, it's a radical invitation again just to be present and that and that it's right here. Just as I said in the Bahia Sutta, it's just in fully present with what's here. It's knowing the qualities. It's right here. And so this tight fist of grasping is imposing, right? We're grasping. but it's open, inviting, and comfortable when we can shift how we're actually relating to the moment. And that it's in the nature, it's in the nature of, in the depths of our hearts and our minds that this is right here. And he says, make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. And so just like the open sky allows us to appreciate the stars, right? The configuration is the beautiful displays of the stars or sky. Right, the displays of the sky. In the same way, when our hearts and our minds become a little more open, a little more free, then we can make use of this. 
And we make use of it by serving the quality of our life. That's what this all is about, isn't it? And that's not selfish, because this is the life we each have, right? You wake up and here you are, every day. So that's just a fact. So how do we use that energy, and how much wakefulness do we bring into it? So the last couple lines, he says, don't search any further looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly in front of your own hearth. So there's this great image. I think Larry's used it here. Yeah, yes. Um, so I stole it from him. I'm acknowledging it. <laughs> it's an image in the New Yorker magazine where uh, people are out looking for this very rare bird. You probably heard it, right? And they're out there with their binoculars like this, creening their necks, looking out like this, and they can't find the bird. And the bird is walking right underneath, right here. Like, great. That's the image. <laughs> Or another image that's used is, um, is that these, there's a family of poor thieves that live on this land, and they, they go searching, they go out every day looking for things to steal, and they never know that there's actually, there actually was a treasure that was hidden in their own land, but they don't look there, right? So it's that shift. It's that shift. Where are we looking for this? This is what it's saying. Where are we actually looking? Where is peace to be found, Right? Well, what is this thing called awareness? Can you show it to me? Can I show it to you? No. <laughs> Can we hold it? Can we grasp it? What is it? We know awareness by, um, by its effects. We know it by how our heart and our minds move. So certain things we know, you can know directly, you can see them. But awareness, we can know it by a sense of, in, this, in, this, in the spirit of this teaching, we can become a little more relaxed on our own skin. That's what I've noticed a lot. And that's one reason I love this teaching, this poem. And that I, I again, I, I mentioned in the beginning, I use it a lot at the end of retreats. Even if they're short. Even day-longs now sometimes. <laughs> because people, work, we work hard to be present. It's going against the stream of our habit energy. It takes work, Right? But then the essence of it is to be able to relax. And then when we relax, it takes work. But then when we learn to find that balance and just drop into the moment, then we're really here. It's comfortable. It's inviting. It's like, oh, it's okay to be here. And then we can see how that we start to move from that. So we see, when we're aware, we see it by the quality of our body. Like, I mean, all the studies that are done in terms of the benefits of meditation, Right? the neurobiological studies, et cetera, they're basically showing the biological effects of being present, of practicing mindfulness. So how do you know it? Well, you know it by its effects. We know it by the joy we take in doing something simple or by the fact that we're not quite as reactive. Or if we are, then we, we get present. It's like whoosh, weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Right? It's like we wobble, but whoosh, then we're here again. We're back up again. We're present again. It's that kind of, it's that kind of resilient energy that we start to discover it's an inner strength. It's a real strength. It's quiet, right? Because we can't, it's nice. You don't have to show it to anybody. You can't show it off. Try. Oh, I'm all, I'm, I, see my glowing awareness. No. <laughs> I showed mine off once when I came back from Asia after many years, and my dad was very disappointed that I didn't go on and fall in the family line and, or whatever. I mean, I didn't do what I, I, didn't, I wasted my education <laughs> in a certain way. A lot of money and time. And, uh, Actually, I didn't waste it, but, uh, and then he said it over, and he's very, you know, he was an Ivy League professor and all this stuff, and I lived, I lived here when he was 
when I was a little kid and when he was getting his doctorate at Harvard. And so I just was in this system and he was very kind of, why you go running off to Asia and doing all this stuff? And I came back and we we're sitting around and it was a few years I was back and sort of getting, doing more responsibility and things like this and that. And he looked at me once over the breakfast table. He never gave compliments. He said, Matthew, you're a lot nicer than you used to be. <laughs> he just looked at me and said, that was it. Just one comment, 20 years. Okay, I'll take it. <laughs> but I would, so I would say, and maybe you don't have to become nicer, but you become more, there's something, so we know, our, we know the effects of being present by what comes out of it, right? So just test it. Just, just, just know that. It doesn't have to be, you know, anything, any great special effects. Um, and the last thing, the last little comments I want to make is that we learn to come and rest quietly in front of our own, in awareness, resting quietly in front of our own hearth. It's here, right? We learn to relax into that. Awareness is present here. It's a resource we have. In one sense, a lot of what we do in practice, we just, we just get little hits of being present throughout the day in daily life or when we do sittings. You know, you stop, we stop the world a little bit, right? We get renewed. We take a breath or we do a sit. And it's, we get little pauses of sanity. And we touch present moment awareness. They're little, they're little pauses of sanity in a certain way. Because we're not so addicted. We're not so caught in all the rest of it, right? The future and the past. And, and really believing all the identities, okay? Living through them. So Buddha Dasa, this wonderful teacher in Thailand, um, said that without having these little, little pauses like throughout the day, that we'd actually become really insane. And you don't have to be a meditator. Look at how people function. That have, that take, they, they go for a walk. They, do, like, they, have little, they, they know how to take breaks. They know how to take pauses. And if you think about it, actually, clinically, when someone has a psychotic, like a psychotic split, then they're so lost in the creations of their mind that they are, have lost a touch with reality. And we do that when we get caught in an addictive pattern that takes us out of any way to be grounded in here and now, right? The energies are too strong. So that happens to us in little ways, but we learn, our practice teaches us to come back. And it's natural and it's cultivated. So in one way, this is just touching little bits of sanity, okay? Do you feel that? When you're present, do you feel just a little bit of... So that's one level, but there's another level where the sense of of awareness starts to run through the activities that we do, they're not just separate. It's not just we're just getting calm. We're not, that there's, there's an awareness that runs through both mental and actual activity on the outside. And one of my favorite uh, quotes is from the Bhagavad Gita. So I'm just ump- upping it a little bit. And it says, someone who sees inactivity, 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 (laughs) and I'll read a quote. (laughs) It's better. One who sees inaction, inaction, and action in inaction is wise among humans. He or she is in a place of awakened awareness 
although engaged in all sorts of activities. So that's taking, that's taking awareness, and it's actually, to put it in more common language, or the way it often feels for me, is that awareness is infusing. It's running through. There's a stillness that runs through activity. It can be there when we're thinking. It can be there when we're rushing around, when we're driving. Right? It's like the thread of mindfulness that runs through. So someone who sees in action, in action, in action, in action, is wise. And we can be sitting, as we know, we can be sitting here all quiet, right? And we can have a lot of action going on even though there's no, in, even though there's inaction. So it's not just a pause, but it's actually that there can be, how many people can relate to that? I just want to see, okay, good, good. So the last, uh, the last thing is a quote from, um, to bring it back to grounding in practice. Yeah, this is a quote from Krishnamurti. So how, like, how do we transform our hearts and our minds, right? We've been talking, we've been talking to it, but this is a beautiful, I think is a way to, to cap it. So the last, the last two phrases are of, the, of the teaching are nothing to do or undo. Nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. Marvelous. Everything happens by itself. So nothing to do or undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. Everything happens by itself. And then what happens when we put ourselves in this place of radical non-manipulation, of just really being with things as they are in relation to ourself? What happens? So Krishnamurti says, if you begin, does everyone know who Krishnamurti is? He's just a great, a great um, sort of non, non-sectarian um, teacher earlier uh, from uh, last century, who is one of uh, the founder Larry Rosenberg's um, made major influences in his life. And I, I spent a lot of time in his places in South India. Um, he just basically threw out all form and ask people to, in a way to do exactly what this, this teaching is saying, is to really be present, just absolutely with things as they are. And if you do this without trying to change, manipulate anything, if you begin to understand, he says, what you are without trying to change it, when you begin to understand what you are without trying to change it, then what you are undergoes a transformation. So nothing to do or undo, nothing to force, and nothing missing. So just relaxing into that possibility that what we need to awaken to our life, to the transformative power of awareness in ourselves, starts, it doesn't end, never ends, actually. It just keeps showing up in different ways. But it starts with just the spirit of what I think this, this poem is very beautifully saying, is just to relax, to open, and to touch, and let life touch us exactly as it is. 
Test this. Okay. So thank you. Um, we've got just about five minutes, a little more than five minutes. So are there any questions? And you can definitely leave if you Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.